Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Jim, every successful debut artist has to face it, the dreaded sophomore slump. But a few manage to meet or even exceed their first effort. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. We'll talk about musicians who were able to achieve a sophomore success. And later, we'll review a new sophomore release, the latest from Nick Cave's blues punk side project, Grinderman. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Greg, we have talked numerous times about the initiative in France, the Three Strikes and Your Outlaw, whereby the government will take away your access to the Internet if they find you pirating files three times. Well, people have been wondering what is the United States going to do to match that? How are we going to really push forward the anti-piracy initiative? It seems as if we have the first really serious plan coming out of the Senate, courtesy of the uh, Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy, who has introduced something awkwardly called, I love this name, Hmm. the Combating Online Infringement and Counterfeits Act. Seems to have bipartisan support. What it would do is set up the Department of Justice, giving them new powers to shut down websites that are hosting pirated content, movie files, music files, you name it. Record labels and other content providers, Big Hollywood, have long been asking for this. They seem to like this bill. They seem to be pushing it hard. The Department of Justice would come in and file a civil action against a website, a domain name, and seek a preliminary order from the courts to shut it down. The courts would then actually be the entity that shuts it down. The thing that's of interest here is a similar plan was put forward during the Bush administration. And bipartisan support turned on it because people pointed out, rightfully, I would think, you're going to be turning the Department of Justice into pro bono lawyers for copyright holders. You're getting the government to do your policing Mm -hmm. instead of you having to foot the bill. And it's a considerable bill if you're going to try to shut down copyright theft. The Senate is saying digital theft is a significant and growing problem. This is the way we're going to tackle it. And the entire Internet world is abuzz with whether this is going to go through. I think the implications of this story, Jim, are that uh, the U.S. government is becoming more involved in this issue. After about a decade of dormancy on it, we're starting to see more voices crop up in the federal government and in Congress 
in favor of doing something, and they're usually taking the side of the copyright holders on this. No surprise there. Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah spoke out about this. He's a self-proclaimed musician as well. Except nobody's downloading his stuff. Yes, and he's singing the praises of the Internet as this great tool for commerce, he says, but it's also becoming a tool for thieves who are robbing intellectual property right holders of their due income. So Hatch is speaking out against this. We have noted in the past that Obama has already appointed a so-called copyright czar to oversee issues in this area. And it needs to be said that five members of the Department of Justice are former attorneys with the Recording Industry Association of America. So it seemed the odds are stacked towards the side of the recording industry in what's going on right now in the federal government. That is U2, of course, and uh, their manager since their boyhood days in Dublin in the 70s is one Paul McGuinness, certainly one of the most powerful managers on the face of the earth of one of the most powerful bands. His voice counts for a lot. He wrote a manifesto of sorts in GQ magazine a few weeks ago that is making the rounds of the record industry and has now gotten wider play. Rolling Stone magazine recently republished excerpts from that as well. McGuinness has been pounding this point for a couple of years now, but he's basically saying that Internet service providers are not doing enough to catch illegal file sharers. He is pointing to the examples of those European governments that we've cited in the past, the three strikes and your outlaws that are available in countries like France currently. The UK has also taken a strong stance against file sharers who abuse copyright, basically threatening to take them off of the Internet if they continue to share files illegally. He's advocating the same sort of thing in the U.S., no surprise there. He says that eventually we're going to have a a good solution to this problem. But what he sees as the solution is that there will be costs bundled into your monthly fee in order to use the Internet that will be shared with recording artists. Now, whether this happens in the United States, it remains to be seen. But we've just given you some examples of news stories that indicate it's starting to run in that direction. And he's also holding out great hopes for Spotify. We've talked about this music platform in the past, Jim. It is big in Europe. It has still not gained a foothold in the U.S. because of numerous licensing issues. But he thinks Spotify may be a possible future for the recording industry as well as a way of getting artists paid for both streaming and downloading music through advertising and paid subscriptions. So in other words, McGinnis is advocating for artists to get paid, no surprise there, but he is again strongly urging governments to get involved, internet service providers to get involved, and we cannot underestimate the power of this guy in the recording industry and the recording industry's power in the halls of Washington, D.C. You know, given U2's concerns, Greg, you would think that the band would be smart enough to know that if the governments can't feed the starving nations of the world, you know, how are they going to fix the copyright mess? McGinnis famously two years ago took aim at Radiohead and said that their whole plan of pay what you want for the download was a horrible mess. Radiohead and its people 
say exactly the opposite. Yeah. You know, I don't think he is on the cutting edge. This is a band that could rewrite the entire music industry because they are so big and powerful, and yet they're in bed with Live Nation, giant mega corporation. They're not thinking outside the box, and I don't know how much credence should be given to what McGinnis is saying. does take two sometimes, as Rob Bass would say, Jim. That is the topic for today's feature on Sound Opinions. The sophomore album Slump is a great rock and roll myth. The idea that it takes a lifetime to make your first album, which is why those debut albums can often be so groundbreaking and astounding, because uh, they introduce the world to a, a great new artist. But the most difficult thing is you've only got a few months to do that second album, and traditionally, they say those second albums aren't nearly as good as the first ones. Today, we're going to try to break that myth because there are numerous examples, we both think, of second albums, sophomore albums, that were as good, if not better, than those great debut albums. Yes, we are, Greg. And as always, when we do these kinds of shows, we like to kick things off with a uh, celebratorial coin toss. On my side of the coin is Mr. Jack Campion, my sophomore high school English teacher. I wouldn't be here today as a writer if it hadn't been for Jack. There you go. I'm going to go with my sophomore year philosophy teacher at Marquette University, Father Roland Teske. All right. The coin is in the air. And it's my English teacher from high school. I get to go first, Greg. Tough topic. I disagree with you. I think that a lot of second albums do stink, but the exceptions are truly exceptional. I mean, I'm trying to steer away from most of the obvious ones. Black Sabbath's Paranoid, Radiohead's second album, Neutral Milk Hotel, Led Zeppelin II, Public Enemy, D'Angelo. i got to do one obvious one, though, because I will argue this is the greatest sophomore album of all time. Bleach introduced Nirvana to the world in 1989. They were a perfectly fine band from Seattle, the northwest of Washington. But, you know, were they any better than Mudhoney or Soundgarden? No. Then, Nevermind comes out of the blue in 1991 and literally changes the world. A whole new radio format is invented. MTV changes overnight. Famously, Nirvana knocks Michael Jackson's Dangerous out of number one on the Billboard chart. There's all those commercial accomplishments. But there was a philosophical shift, too. I'm not saying Nirvana was better than any of its peers or the indie rock movement that that preceded it, but, you know, they were the band that connected with the masses and introduced an entire generation to music that was a little more substantive. You had to dig a little more. Nevermind has become so ubiquitous, it's almost like you can't listen to it. I personally always go to either Bleach or In Utero, but when you dig deeper past the many hits on Nevermind, you see some other great stuff that doesn't get played as often. I'm going to play the song Polly. A rare, quiet, acoustic moment on this big, bombastic record that meant a lot to Kurt Cobain. This was a song about a sexual assault, and it troubled him deeply. This was his litmus test. When he sang this song, and people understood the words and were with him in despising this incident portrayed in the song, he knew that they were on his side. When people cheered, He's like, I, I don't understand this audience, and they're not listening to me or understanding me. This was, this was a key song for him in terms of him being really troubled by the mass popularity that he would have. A record that went on to sell 10 million copies worldwide. 
I don't know if a sophomore album's ever done it better. Here is Polly by Nirvana from Nevermind on Sound Opinions. Polly wants a cracker Think I should get off her first Think she wants some water To put out the blowtorch Isn't me Have a seat Let me clip Dirty wings Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Got some rope Have been told Promise you Have been true Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Haunting song, Greg, Polly by Nirvana from Nevermind on Sound Opinions. We are talking about records that broke the curse of the sophomore slump and were sophomore super successes. What's your first pick? Well, Nirvana's undeniable, Jim, no doubt about that. And I'm going to stay in Seattle for my first choice. Uh, I'm going to go with Jimi Hendrix. Not only did this guy have the good fortune, or maybe misfortune if you're looking at it from today's topic, of making a an amazing groundbreaking debut album, Are You Experienced in 1967. Two albums later, he made Electric Ladyland, another landmark album. In between was an album that I am going to argue was every bit as good as both of those albums, but is often not recognized as such. Axis, bold as love. Now, Hendrix was one of those guys, a child of the 60s, who was bound by these ridiculous recording contracts. When Hendrix signed his deal 
with Warner Brothers back in the day, they commanded him to make two albums in his first year. Hmm. So, okay, you've got that lifetime to make that first album, right? Are You Experience comes out. Yes, indeed. It shows the world this exciting new guitar player. He goes on to the Monterey Pop Festival, lights his guitar on fire. Everybody's talking about Hendrix. A few months later, he comes out with Axis Bold as Love, a tremendous, tremendous follow-up album. I think that shows the breadth of his talents to an even greater degree. What I loved about this record is that you got the the tenderness there with songs like Little Wing and Castles Made of Sand. You got this incredibly personal music in a song like If Six Was Nine. And then you got his little tribute to the band he was in before they became the Jimi Hendrix experience with Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding, that British rhythm section that he was working with at the time, the Isley Brothers. What I wouldn't have given to see Jimi Hendrix with the Isley Brothers back in the early to mid-60s. What a band that must have been. It must have been truly exciting to see Hendrix back then. But he tips the cap to that great R&B band with a bit of hard-edged R&B himself from Axis Bold as Love on this song, You Got Me Floating on Sound Opinions. Well, you got me floating around and round Always up, you never let me down The amazing thing, you turn me on naturally and I kiss you when I That was You Got Me Floating from Jimi Hendrix's sophomore album, Axis Bold as Love. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll highlight more sophomore success stories. And later on, we're going to write the sequel to Nick Cave's Grinderman project, Grinderman 2.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And we are discussing albums that break the dreaded sophomore slump curse. Greg, I have a theory about successful sophomore albums. You know, the ones that really stand out are the ones that told us this band is going to have a long career with a lot of twists and turns. It has surprises in it that never even were hinted at on the first record, as strong as that was. It's the one that marks the career band from the one-hit wonder, one-album wonder. I'm going to dig deep for this, and I may surprise you. I'm going to make the case for the Cars' second album, Candy O. I think the Cars are an underrated band from that just post-punk new wave explosion in the United States. They make their self-titled debut in 1978, and it's the safe record for all the big classic rock stations to embrace new wave. Now, you know, what used to be called punk, new wave is a more acceptable term. It's got a major label backing. This is this is shiny. It's happy. There's those great hits, Just What I Needed, My Best Friend's Girl. There's some synthesizer and some electronic drums and a new angular, new wave, groovy attitude, right? But we can still relate to it. The Cars were a better band than that. That first album is a pretty simple, brilliant pop record. Album number two, Candio, in 1979, is the one that shows us, okay, these guys are really very smart. What they are doing is taking the artistic experimentation and glam rock innovations of Roxy Music and putting it with that post-punk new wave energy and coming up with something different. And there's a lot of different stylistic detours in their music. There's some experimentation, but it's always really great pop music. I think it's the one that marked the Cars as a great band. Plus, it has that wonderful cover by the then 80-something-year-old pinup artist, Alberto Vargas. I'm going to play the song Let's Go. I have not been able to get this song out of my head <laughs> since I first heard it in 1979. Absolutely brilliant. Here's the cars on Sound Opinions.
Let's go from the Cars sophomore album, Candy O. Good choice, Jim, on a great sophomore album. Another problem with the second album is when you follow up a record that you made when you were really young, there's a tendency to to look somewhat dubiously at an artist who debuts when they're just a teenager, maybe even in their early 20s, thinking, well, is this artist really going to grow, mature beyond that uh, initial fandom that they attract? One such example, Sinead O'Connor made her debut album when she was 20, which means basically she wrote most of the songs on it when she was still a teenager. You can hear some of that callowness in her very fine 1987 debut album, The Lion and the Cobra, this young Irish lass working through some of her growing pains on that debut album. And it was exciting stuff. But I think the jury was still out on whether or not there was a long-term career in store for her. Man, oh man, did she follow it up. In 1990, when she was 23 years old, only three years later, it seemed like she'd lived a lifetime in those three years and made this remarkably mature album. It's really a breakup album. It was a lacerating look at her brief marriage to her drummer, John Reynolds, with whom she had a child. And she looks at their love affair and their divorce and their life after divorce with a really introspective and sad and sometimes disdainful eye, but there's nothing less than complete honesty on this record. That is what it is so riveting about it. When people think about this album, I'm sure they think about that remarkable cover of the Prince song, uh, Nothing Compares to You, and that is indeed a great track, but Sinead's songwriting on this record is remarkable too. And I'm going to play a song that I think illustrates that. The Last Day of Our Acquaintance is the track I'm going to play. It is a remarkable look back on the day when those divorce papers are filed and they're walking into that lawyer's office and walking out a divorced couple. It builds and builds from a very quiet beginning to this crescendo at the end. Harrowing stuff to listen to in a lot of ways. Sinead O'Connor with The Last Day of Our Acquaintance from her sophomore album released in 1990, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got on Sound Opinions. Days and day of friendship has been
Sinead O'Connor with the last day of our acquaintance on Sound Opinions from her sophomore album in 1990, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. Jim, we're running down our favorite sophomore albums of all time. What have you got next? Greg, I have to talk about A Tribe Called Quest. Debuted in 1990, really based around the collaboration between rapper-producer Q-Tip and the rapper Fife Dog, other people in and out of the group, it was a strong debut. People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm. But what they were trying to do, a merger between hip-hop and jazz, they were hinting at it, but they didn't quite get there. Big hit in the hip-hop community, but to the world at large, not a lot of attention. Then along comes album number two, only a year later, 1991, same year as Nirvana's Nevermind, The Low End Theory. I got to quote the hip-hop scholar Oliver Wang. He said this was a consummate link between generations, the album that showed that hip-hop and jazz originated from the same black center. They have Ron Carter, great jazz bassist, double bassist, coming in to play acoustic bass on tracks. They're stripping everything down to to, to essentially just the bass drum and the rapping, and and they do so much with with so few ingredients, really pointing the way to what would be called the alternative hip-hop movement, even though that would come to become an albatross around the neck of anybody trying to do something really creative outside the box other than gangster rap in the hip-hop world. I think this album holds up beginning to end as absolutely brilliant. I want to play one of the finest songs, though. It's called Check the Rhyme by A Tribe Called Quest from The Low End Theory on Sound Opinions. Back in the days on the boulevard I landed We used to kick routines and the presence was fitting It was I, the abstract And me, the five-footer I kicks the mad style, so step off the frankfurter Yo, Fife, you remember that routine That we used to make spiffy like Mr. Clean Um, um, a tidbit, um, a smidgen I don't get the message, so you got to <laughs> okay. run the pigeon You're on point, Fife All the time, Tip You're on point, Fife All the time, Tip You're on point, Fife All the time, Tip So then grab the microphone and let your words rip Now here's a funky introduction of how nice I am Tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram I'm like an energizer cause you see I last long My crew is never ever whack because we stand strong Now if you say my style is whack, I swear you're dead wrong I slay that body and El Segundo then push it along You'll be a fool to reply the fight is not the man Cause you know and I know that you know who I am A special shout out piece goes out to all my pals you see And a middle finger goes for all you punk seats Cause I love it when you whack MCs despise me They get vexed, I will next cause none can test me I'm just a fly MC who's 5 for 3 and very brave On top remaining, no home training cause I misbehave I come correct in full effect, of all my holes in check And before I get the butt, the gym must be a wreck You see my aura's positive, I don't promote no junk See I'm far from a bully and I ain't a punk Extremity of rhythm, yeah that's what you heard So just clean out your ears and just check the word Check the vibe, Great second album, The Low End Theory from A Tribe Called Quest. That's a track called Check the Rhyme from it. Uh, Good choice, Jim. My uh, next sophomore album is from 1978. It is by Elvis Costello. In 1977, he debuted with a record called My Aim is True that established him as the new voice of the new wave that was all the rage at the time. Singer-songwriter writing these kind of angry songs, He was backed up by a studio band, Clover, at the time. That wasn't really his band. They were just sort of put together for the project as a vehicle for bringing his songs out into the world. 
But I think with the second record is where he really found his true voice and he found his band, The Attractions. And that second album, This Year's Model, released in 1978, hot on the heels of My Aim is True, has it all over the debut as far as I'm concerned. Once again, Costello, he was portraying, quote-unquote, the angry young man back in those days. And I think he really was, even though if you talk to him these days, he sort of poo-poos that and, and says, you know, I was just playing a role. I don't know if you saw him back in those days, Jim, but, you know, he was a presence on stage. Uh, something... De- Declan McManus had some problems yes, back then. Yeah, yeah. He, he never really quite got back to that place. I think he became much more mannered as a performer in subsequent years. But back then, I don't think he was playing any kind of role at all. And part of the reason was the excellence of his backing trio. Steve Naive on keyboards, Bruce Thomas on bass, Pete Thomas on drums. What a band and what an album. I think they really make it what it is. It is very stripped down very nasty. Naive's organ playing throughout is hanging over all the arrangements like this dark cloud, and the rhythm section is absolutely ferocious, matching the bile in Elvis Costello's lyrics. Here's an example of it, Lipstick Vogue from Elvis Costello's This Year's Model on Sound Opinions. That is Lipstick Vogue by Elvis Costello from his second album, another fine sophomore choice, Mr. Cott. If you'd like to suggest another sophomore success or comment on anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800 and we'll put it on the air. Greg and I will be back with our final picks for great second albums, and then we'll see how Nick Cave and Grinderman fare on their sophomore release. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Just like a human being 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. Uh, yes, indeed, one is sometimes the loneliest number. A lot of times, great albums are made when an artist debuts. Very seldom are they able to follow it up with an equally great sophomore album. But we're providing some exceptions to that rock myth. Running down some of the great sophomore albums of all time. Jim, what have you got for us next? Greg, I'm going to go with Polly Jean Harvey of Dorset, England for my final choice. A fine debut in 1992, dry, really propulsive garage take on blues and blues rock. Showed a lot of promise. Then along comes album number two in 93, Rid of Me. Polly Jean Harvey was never really too thrilled with that first record, you know? It didn't feel she got it right. She wanted to be faster. She wanted to be louder. She wanted to be more raw and more aggressive. And when Polly Jean Harvey says, I'm going to step up the aggression, (laughs) man, are you in for it. This is one of those sheer off the top of your head albums, pure and simple. I'd been a fan of the first one. I'll never forget getting the second one. It's like, wow, mm. who is this woman? It's one of those records I, I could play Rid of Me. I could play Man Size Sextet. I could play 50 Foot Queenie. I want to play Dry. I wanna, but I want to go with Man Size. One of these records I love. It never gets old. I've been playing it since the day it came out. Here is PJ Harvey on Sound Opinions. That is P.J. Harvey, the trio, and the woman from their second album, Rid of Me, the song Man Size. Greg, how are you going to wrap up our sophomore album show? 
Jim, I'm going to go with what I think, in my mind, is as great a second album as has ever been released. I think it is one of the great hip-hop albums of all time, and it came from a very unexpected source. It was released in 1989 by the Beastie Boys. Now, recall that the Beastie Boys had made a debut album which had really shaken up the pop world. It was called License to Ill. It came out in 1986. And the headline in the Village Voice when reviewing the album said, Three Idiots Make a Masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, remember. the Beastie Boys were not really well regarded as rhymesmiths. They were considered sort of these frat rap yokels who sort of wandered into the hip-hop world after starting out as this hardcore band in New York. And under the tutelage of Rick Rubin made this really fine debut album. But there was no expectation that this group was actually going to make a great follow-up album, let alone one that is considered an artistic masterpiece. Well, you'll recall on on its second album, Public Enemy, yeah. you know, uh, Chuck D ends the record with Party for Your Right to Fight, yeah. taking, taking aim both barrels at these Beastie Boys. Yeah, well, here they come with Paul's Boutique. Instead of making an East Coast album like they did with the, with the debut, they went out west. They had broken up with Ruben at this point. They were on bad terms with him. They hooked up with a duo named the Dust Brothers, who are working on some really dense instrumental collages. Now, at the time, the Dust Brothers were intending these sample-heavy tracks to be released as an instrumental album. At the time, it was still the Wild Wild West when it came to hip-hop copyright. You could pretty much sample anything you wanted and put it in really interesting new shapes without fear of reprisal from the courts or the copyright attorneys. It was a wonderful time for creativity in hip-hop music. And just before that era ended, Paul's Boutique came out. The Beastie Boys, to their credit, heard these tracks and said, no, we want to rhyme over this stuff. The Dust Brothers were amazed that anybody would want to do that yeah. because they were so dense and inventive. They didn't really lend themselves to writing the beat the way the Beastie Boys and a lot of other hip-hop acts were doing at the time. They created a really amazing record, combining the versatility of those three very different voices atop these very dense and layered tracks. There were well over 100 music samples compiled to put this album together. And the track I'm going to play, Eggman, has more than a dozen, coming from all sorts of sources. I mean, we're, we're talking about quotes from movies like Jaws and Aliens. We're talking about Curtis Mayfield. We're talking about Commodore samples, Tower of Power, Sly and the Family Stone, Elvis Costello, a little bit of Public Enemy returning the favor on this track, all jumbled up into this amazing funk track. Eggman from the Beastie Boys on Paul's Boutique, one of the great sophomore albums of all time on Sound Opinions. Oh, yeah. Big fat 
Incredible track from Paul's Boutique, the fine second album by the Beastie Boys. That is Eggman. If you want to see a full list of our sophomore album favorites, go to soundopinions.org. listening to Sound Opinions, that is a track called Worm Tamer from Grinder Man 2, the second album, of course, the sophomore album from Grinder Man. Grinder Man headed by Nick Cave, one of the great songwriters of the last three or four decades, I'd say, came out of Australia in a really nasty post-punk band called Birthday Party, relocated to London, formed the Bad Seeds there, has been working with that band pretty much continuously since the early 80s releasing a series of fine albums all over the map, murder ballads to serrating punk songs and everything in between. He has covered the gamut with a band that has an orchestral dimension to it, and at the same time, this great storytelling tradition. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether Nick Cave is a Old Testament preacher or a rock and roller. Sometimes he's both, all wrapped into one, one of the most magnetic performers of recent times. And, and a scary individual. Oh, we had the bad scenes on the, the radio show a couple of uh, years ago. I think that is our most frightening guest ever. <laughs> In 2007... His career got a second wind, Jim. He pared down the Bad Seeds, which are a rather large, sometimes unwieldy band. He stripped it down to a quartet to make a side project called Grinderman. What an album that was. Just straight-up punk screeds, stream-of-consciousness songwriting, much less studied, much less editing. It was kind of more off-the-cuff than the Bad Seeds were. And I think it ignited something in in Cave at the time because he followed that up with a really fine Bad Seeds album, I think he enjoyed the whole Grinderman experience so much that he's back to doing that again. Cave on vocals and guitar, playing guitar in this ensemble, whereas he usually does not. And Warren Ellis is accomplice in the Bad Seeds on various stringed instruments. Martin Casey on bass and Jim Sclavonis on drums. Here's a track from Grinderman 2. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play this track first. It's called Palaces of Montezuma on Sound Opinions. Babylon, Miles Davis, the black unicorn, I give to you. 
of Montezuma from Grinderman 2, Nick Cave on vocals. A real departure for Grinderman, if you only know that first album. There's melody in that song. How about that, Greg? <laughs> yeah. I would not have thought, as much as I loved the first Grinderman album, you figure, where can they go the second time around? Well, Grinderman is showing that it can go a lot of different places besides that bluesy garage rock. There's some melody here. There's some dark experimentation. Not Every track is successful. I don't like that long, moody, plotting, what-I-know song. But every other track here, it's a short, sharp shock of an album, is great and points at, at different aspects that we didn't hear the first time around. Buy it, burn it, trash it scale is a buy it record. I agree with you on everything except what you said about what I know. I love that track. <laughs> that is that, that track just creeps me out. He leaves so much unsaid. There's so much space in that track for the listener to use their own imagination about what exactly is going on in that song. In the time that I got married, hey, I know, I know, a million things are gonna happen to me. In rooms that are much like these. Some of the noises that Warren Ellis gets out of those stringed instruments, it's as violent and nasty as any rock and roll ever made. And, I mean, and, and it's a may, bazooki sometimes, yeah, for goodness sakes. I mean, people may think of that as hyperbole, but there are some just scary-sounding stuff on this record. And Cave is right in that pocket. I mean, his, his writing is flowing right out of what this band sounds like. It is a mean, nasty rock and roll machine that we've got here. In case you're wondering, that's a buy it for this record for me as well. Obviously an enthusiastic double buy it. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have one of the great rock innovators of all time, Michael Rota of Noi. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon, who only a little while ago was a sophomore at Northwestern University. Our producers are Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana, two fine folks who have never had a slump. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia. Just a warning, if you ever meet him, don't ask him about his sophomore year. sound opinions, everyone's a critic. 
So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You never call my name. Hey guys, this is Paul out in California. Just listen to the Slayer Show, and this is what I love about you guys. It was interesting, intelligent, meaningful conversation about a band that, quite frankly, I don't even like, but I sure like the guys in the band now. I understand their process. Great job, great job. Keep doing this stuff. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Doug from Evanston. The interview with Slayer reminded me in a funny way of Rush Limbaugh. When Rush every now and then gets asked, what do you mean by calling women feminazis? Or what do you mean by marginalizing gays or ridiculing people who care about the environment? His standard reply is, oh, I'm just an entertainer. Maybe Rush sees it that way, but the problem is he has a very real impact on culture. So when Greg asked the question of Kerry King, as a parent, how do you explain your lyrics to your own kid? It wasn't surprising to hear Kerry King use the same lame Rush Limbaugh defense. It's just entertainment. In other words, I don't, as an artist, really believe in what I'm saying. Shocking people is just a marketing ploy. The words of bands like Slayer do have a real and negative impact on culture. Glorifying things like murder and suicide really is evil. Why not let your listeners discover a real artist who happens to be a person of faith, hope, and belief in God? There's got to be somebody out there singing a different tune than Slayer who's worth listening to. Thanks. Hey, my name is Josh. I'm calling from New York. I'm, I'm calling in response to the review of your Weezer album. I feel like something that you guys may have missed is Rivers Cuomo is just like obsessed with the past. If I hear another song that he's written about some memory that he had, about something that happened to him in junior high school, it'll be too soon. love Weezer. Weezer's sort of like the pizza of rock music. Even when it's not that great, it's still pretty good. But I feel like that sort of getting stuck in the past sort of speaks to the fact that their music itself has not evolved, really, in the last several albums. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks very much. It's James in Atlanta. I, I just listened to your podcast regarding uh, the white mystery and I had to listen to it twice because I thought maybe there was some kind of mystery that I wasn't clued in on, but there's really nothing A, original, or B, remotely good about that band. I, I really don't understand what the infatuation is. And just the fact that you guys alluded to the White Stripes, like, 
why why make another white stripes when the first one was better? I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't know if anybody else out there agrees with me or not. Sorry. Hi, guys. This is Daryl calling from Detroit. And uh, just wanted to say thanks for turning me on to White Mystery last night. Really enjoyed the interview and listening to her talk about her career. It was fun, it was fun to listen to, and uh, the music was really cool listening to live. So appreciate it. Keep doing the good work. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.